this morning, I am so excited to share with you um, our second week in the book of Revelation. Last week, we kicked off this series in Revelation, and if you weren't here, uh, we saw how Revelation is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus. It says that in Revelation 1, 1, 1 verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, not just from Him, but of Him, so that we can see Him for who He is, and, and uh, he, it just breaks down. Revelation 1, if you missed it, it's up online on our website or on our SoundCloud account, um, but it just breaks down all of those religious stereotypes that people have of Jesus. You know, we, have, we often have such a neutered version of Jesus, such a, a you know, a, a, a sterile version of Jesus and who He is and what He's like, and, and we've removed Him uh, from His seat of power in our own minds and His ability, and we do this when we, when we lack faith in who He is, and Revelation 1 comes along and it just reveals Jesus. It just says, but this is who Jesus is, and this is what he looks like, and this is what his power is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation we looked at last week means, it comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which ultimately means a revealing or an unveiling or an opening of the eyes to see the thing behind the thing, to see things as they truly are. And when we see Jesus in this way, the way that He truly is, the way that He is in heaven and all of His power and all of His might and all of His grace, we're encouraged to live our lives in light of that revelation, in light of that perspective and that understanding. We're encouraged to persevere through every single trial, through every difficulty, through every challenge, through every obstacle in your life. When you see Jesus, I promise you, you will have courage to face those moments. You will have faith in those moments. It inspires faith in our hearts. It helps us to find strength and virtue in the truth of God's presence. And so last week we saw Jesus like perhaps many of you have never seen him before. We saw him as the king and as the high priest with his face shining with the brilliance of, of the sun shining at full strength with eyes of fire and a double-edged sword proceeding from his mouth with his feet with like burnished bronze and and he declares, he stands there before, uh, before John in the presence of, the, of these lampstands, and he declares that he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, the beginning and the end. In other words, the eternal king, the ruler of the nations, the sovereign God almighty, and there is no one else like him. You've never seen a God like this before. You've never tasted power like this before. You've never been able to conceive the full majesty of this Jesus whom we serve. And Revelation 1 just pulls back a cur the curtain just a little bit to reveal to us a Jesus who is more powerful and more loving and, and, and uh, more able than so many of us believe him to be. And what's even better than that is that we saw in Revelation 1, the first part of God's self-revelation is that he describes himself as the one who loves us. This mighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, through whom all things were made and all things are held together by the word of his power, he loves you. He loves you. He cares about you. He died to release you from the penalty of sin and the power of sin over your life. And beyond that, it says that he has transformed us and is transforming us. He loves you so much that he is still involved in your life. He didn't just die on the cross, but he is still at work appropriating through the Holy Spirit the full finished work of the cross to your life. 
transforming us. As we behold Him, we're transformed from glory to glory. And so we ended off in Revelation 1 last week where John falls before Jesus as dead. And we said that's what happens when we see Jesus in His full might and majesty. All of our illusions of strength and self-ability and self-help, they just crumble before Him and we fall at His feet. He's the Savior. He's the Savior. We fall at his feet as, as though dead. There's no strength left in us or the illusion of strength leaves us. And this beautiful picture where Jesus puts his hand on John's shoulder. And that's what he's done for us. Do you know this morning that the hand of Jesus is on your shoulder? That the hand of Jesus is on your life? That the hand of Jesus is on our church? Did you know that? doesn't matter who comes against us. doesn't matter what we have to go through. When the hand of Jesus is on your shoulder, on your life, he says, I was once dead, but now I am alive, and I have the keys to death and Hades. You have nothing to fear. When his hand is on us, we have everything that we need, and he is the one who has victory over death. And so in that moment, as he says, I am the one who was once dead and now I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys to death and Hades. There is nothing more to fear. He goes, so John, get a pen. I don't know what they wrote with back then. Get a feather. Get a chisel and some rock, whatever you need. But write this down. I have a message for the church. I have a message for the church. Jesus, the resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus, he has something that he wants to say to the church. This ruler of all, God Almighty, passionately in love with his people, the conqueror of death, he has a few things to say. So he goes, so, so write this down. I mean, how many of you think that once you get a message, like you're going to start paying attention? Okay, what does Jesus have to say? To the church? What is his message to the church? And can we begin this morning by stating the obvious here that the church matters to Jesus? I know we treat the church like an option. I know we treat the church like the place that's there to fulfill us of all of our desires and our preferences. I know that we, we, you know, we kind of play fast and loose with our commitment at times as people. But when it comes to Jesus, he is absolutely passionate about the church. When he was on this earth, he said, a zeal for your house has consumed me. The church matters to Jesus. In Ephesians, he says that he loves the church so much, he gave himself up for her. In the book of Acts, he confronts Saul, who was persecuting the church, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're doing it directly against me. When people come against the church, they go directly against the body of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And again, I'm overwhelmed by the sense and this conviction that we have turned the church into a social club in our day and age, which we commit to purely based on whether or not our list of preferences have been met. People visit the church, even Anchor Church, for months before they commit to being a member of our church. And all, all the while, they, they're kind of testing, you know, does this meet my requirements? Is this church good enough for me? That's the wrong way to approach church. Unfortunately, we're in the book of Revelation, and Jesus has a few very straight things to say, so I have to echo that. You know, the real question you have to ask yourself is, has God placed you here? Nothing else matters. You might not like my preaching that much, 
You might think, you know, our band can improve. You might think that the coffee could be a little warmer. Uh, you know, whatever it might be. I know that we're in a glass building, so there's reverb in the building. But does it really matter if God called you to be here? If God called you to be a part of this community of faith, does any of that really matter? You stand before Jesus one day, and we all will, and he says to us, hey, why didn't you commit where I sent you? No, Jesus, there was an echo. <laughs> it's going to be weak. I was reading Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson this week, and man, he, is just, he just wrote some of the most incredible things. And he wrote this, and I wanted to share it with you real quick this morning. He says, the gospel, the message of the Bible, is never for individuals, but always for a people. Sin fragments us, separates us, and sentences us to solitary confinement. The gospel restores us, unites us, and sets us in community. The life of faith revealed and nurtured in the biblical narratives is a highly personal, but never merely individual. Always there is a family, a tribe, a nation, church. God's love and salvation are revealed and experienced in the congregation of the people who know the festal shout, not in the garden alone. The gospel pulls us into community. One of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me. Sin, both our own and that of others, drives us into customized selfishness. Separation from God becomes separation from neighbor. Every tendency towards privatism and individualism distorts and falsifies the gospel distorts and falsifies the gospel. The Bible knows nothing of the soul who is in Plotinus's words, alone with the alone. Away from others, love bloats into pride. Grace cannot be received privately. Cut off from others, it's perverted into greed. Hope cannot develop in solitude. Separated from the community, it goes into seed form, into, into, goes to seed in the form of fantasies. No gift, no virtue can develop and remain healthy apart from the community of faith. It is not possible, and this I want to shout from the rooftops, it is not possible to have Christ apart from the church. We try, we would very much like to have Christ apart from the contradictions and the distractions of the other persons who believe in Him or say that they do. We want a Christ who is pure goodness, beauty, and truth. We prefer to worship Him under the caress of a sunning stunning sunset or with the inspiring tonalities of a soaring symphony or by means of a penetrating poetry. We would like to put as much distance as possible between our worship of Christ and the indifferent hymn singing and fussy moralism which somehow always gets into the church. We are ardent after God but cool towards the church. It's not irreligion or indifference that keeps many away from the church but just the opposite. The church is perceived and experienced as a carcinogenic pollutant in the air of religion. But to all of this aspiring asceticism, the gospel says, no, no. You can't just worship Jesus on your own with a sunset and a glass of wine. You can't just go off and read a poem and go, I've just, I don't need the church. I feel so close to God here in my bedroom this morning. Now I'll go back to sleep. It's not biblical. You cannot have Christ apart from the church. To be a member of Christ is to be a member of his body. And Jesus cares about his church. He cares about your involvement. He wants to nurture you here and cause you to grow here. 
He cares about his church like a father cares for his children, like a husband loves his wife, like Will loves McDonald's. That's how much he loves the church. And he wants the church to know that he stands in their midst, that he's in our midst. The revelation of John saw Jesus in the midst of the lampstands, which represented seven churches in the province of, of Asia, in the Roman province of Asia. And this is so encouraging for me to know that, that God fights for us, that he stands with us, that he instructs us, that he disciplines those in whom he delights. Revelation, the book, has a cycle of visions. And this is very much what we often do here on a Sunday without realizing it's what a lot of scripture does because there are two realities within which we live. The one reality is our earthly reality. It's what happens in our day-to-day. -day. You might feel pumped after a Sunday morning service, but tomorrow is Monday, and the day after is Tuesday, and then it's Wednesday, and you have to deal with real life and real situations. And many of us ask the question, how did what I hear about on Sunday, how does it actually affect my Monday? How does it change the way I live? How does it give me strength to deal with my financial crisis or my health issues or my, my, my relational breakdowns? How does the gospel apply to my life? How is it hope for me in everyday life? And so there is an earthly reality that can so often, often overwhelm us and dictate our perceptions, dictate what we see and what we know and what we believe and what we hope. And, and, and how many of you know that what you go through in your daily life can affect you emotionally? It can affect you psychologically. It can affect you even spiritually. It can overwhelm you. There's enough in this world in every day to overwhelm all of us. There's enough trouble and enough heartache and enough brokenness. And so that's one reality. And Revelation shows us that, re uh, that reality. It's also almost like a microcosm of history. But it pulls us into another reality. It creates a tension for us through separate visions or as the visions progress. And there are a cycle of these visions in Revelation which almost ends up becoming like a big curve going around and around and around. When you get to the bottom of the curve, there's the earthly reality. There's the struggle. There's the pain. There's the church in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of challenges, in the midst of slander, in, in the midst of heartache and, and hardness. That's the real life that the people, that these letters were written to in that time we're facing but then it cycles up and it says yes that's the earthly reality but here's the spiritual reality here's the heavenly reality and then it cycles back down and says yes I know that this is happening and this is going to take place on the earth and you're going to taste this and see this and feel this but here's the heavenly reality and so much of our lives is spent in tension between the battle for between the earthly reality and the heavenly reality, what we see and what we believe. It's like when the prophet stood with a servant and the people came out and there was an army that came out of the tent. There was an army against them. And Elisha said to his servant, don't worry, those that are with us is more than those that are out there. And, and, and the servant looked around and goes, one, two. I don't get it. I don't get it. There's an army and one, two. And the prophet prayed and said, open his eyes, God, that he might see the heavenly reality. And all of a sudden his eyes were opened and he realized that the armies of heaven, the hosts of heaven, were surrounded, surrounding this earthly army that had come against them. You see, revelation is about opening eyes. 
And God wants you to know that in the midst of your earthly challenges and obstacles and in the midst of what we face as a church, there is a fiery-eyed Jesus standing with us. There is one with a sword that proceeds from his mouth who is with us, fighting for us. There is one with feet burnished like bronze standing at our side. And when we face these difficult things, we know that he is with us. How much do we need this? You know, how much of our anxiety, the Bible tells us that you're anxious because you've forgotten the faithfulness of God. Come on, church, all of us do this. We're anxious because we forget how powerful Jesus is. His presence isn't real to us in that moment. And we feel overwhelmed. And so the scripture says, when you feel that way, don't be anxious, but pray with thanksgiving. Remind yourself whose you are. Remind yourself who's standing with you. Remind yourself that God is faithful and thank him for it. And your anxiety will dissipate and go away. Everybody sees the earthly reality, but not everyone sees or knows or trusts in the heavenly reality. And Revelation is trying to open up our eyes to see more of that reality. And so there's this movement in Revelation between what we see on earth and how it is in the spirit. And, uh, and, and that's the purpose of Revelation, to assure readers. At the time that this was written, the church was in persecution and would go and face greater persecution. Greater persecution. And so it's written, like a lot of apocalyptic literature, is written to, to tell people that God is faithful and despite the conditions of evil and of this age, we should remain loyal to God. That our only hope is to remain loyal to Him rather than giving in to the, the forces that, that oppose God and oppose the church. And so there is a fight of faith. The title of my message this morning from Revelation 2 and 3 is The Fight of Faith. Paul says that, he writes and he says that we are to fight and to wage the good fight of faith. There's a fight for our faith. There's a fight for us between the earthly reality and the spiritual reality that we must engage in, and that we must remain faithful in. So Jesus speaks to these seven churches, and uh, I've got a map up here of where those churches were situated. This is where, uh, where, Paul, uh, sorry, where John was here in Patmos, and he writes, in order to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He writes in order to those churches, these seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, and Jesus speaks to them, but he is speaking to them like a head coach in a huddle before an important game. And he is saying to his team, I know this is going to be tough. It's the last quarter of the game. This is going to be a, a tough one for us. This is the biggest opponent you've ever faced. But I want you to trust me. I want you to keep your eyes on me. I want you to remember our vision and the purpose for which we came together. I want you to hold fast to the game plan, and never give up. That's essentially revelation. Jesus calling us together. And he has some commendations. You did this great. You're doing this well. Hey, let's change this. This is not working out. Like a head coach talking to a team. And so he does that because he knows the church is in a fight, a fight for faith and faithfulness in the midst of attack. In the, midst, in the midst of all that the devil throws against us as the church, that he still throws against us now, 
How many of you have, have realized that you know, the moment you, you're like, okay, I'm going to obey God, I'm going to surrender my life, it's like everything and the kitchen sink heads your way. I mean, literally everything gets thrown at you. And, uh, and, you, and some of us are like, okay, uh, let me just go back to the, it was safer the way things w- were before, you know, like mild commitment, you know, nothing flying at me, step up for Jesus, life falls apart. I'll just go back to that. That's exactly the plan of the enemy. We started Anchor Church three and a half years ago, three months into our church plant, baby church that we have, just a, a young, you know, fledgling of a community. And my personal life gets attacked in a greater way than I've ever experienced. Just everything thrown at us. But do you know how you conquer in Scripture? Do you know how we conquer as the faithful? There's one way that we conquer, by remaining faithful. That's the only way. Because Jesus has already conquered, and he is already faithful, and so all we need to do is keep standing in the finished work that he has already accomplished. We conquer by being faithful, by remaining faithful, by not giving up. That's all you need to do. So the only thing I needed to do in order for God to move my life from a place of of absolute attack and brokenness to restoration is not give up and just keep going. Some of you may be on the brink of giving up. Don't. Remain faithful and you will conquer in him who holds the keys to death and Hades. He's ruler over all. He fights for us. You say you're going to serve Jesus, your friends turn their back on you, people question your sanity. Don't give up. Jesus wants you to know he's in our midst. I remember when I was uh, 15 years old, I was playing um, rugby on a Saturday morning in the under-15 A team at my high school, and uh, after the game, I went up the stairs, and I had some friends there, my parents were there, they had come to watch the game, and uh, one of the guys who was like a reserve in the first team, or, a, or maybe a second team player, he came up to me, and apparently, I have no idea, to this day, I had no idea what I did to irritate him, but he uh, grabbed a hold of my jersey and he told me to go and wait in the change room because the first team is going to come and sort me out. I to this day, I have no idea what I did. Maybe he just didn't like my face or what it is, but he grabbed me and he says, you go wait in there, the first team's coming. And when you're 15 years old and you've got a you know, team of rugby players, you're wondering what are they going to do to me you know, here in the change room. But before he could finish his last word, he didn't realize my dad was standing behind him. And before he finished his sentence... My dad had grabbed him by the back of the neck, all right, by the back of the neck. I thought he was going to break. I could see my dad's knuckles going white. And he carried him down the long stairwell, going down to the rugby field, so that this guy's only his toes were touching the stairs, right? My dad was carrying him down, and he marched him straight to the principal, and only there roughly unhandled him and laid a charge against him before the principal, right? How many of you know that when the enemy has you in his sights, in that moment, do you want loving Jesus meek and mild? Do you want Jesus carrying the lamb all gentle across his neck? No, when the enemy has come against you, how many of you know you want the God with the eyes of fire, who judges all things, with the feet burnished with bronze, with the sword that will make war with the words that come forth from his mouth? He'll fight for you. 
So many people look at that image of Jesus and go, ooh, that's scary. I just want the calm Jesus. Do you really want the calm Jesus in the midst of the persecution? When people are, 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 are coming against your life, when the enemy is coming against your life, which Jesus do you want? So rather than being a source of fear, this image of Jesus is a source of great encouragement to us. The one with eyes of fire who sees all. He stands in the midst of our lampstand. People come against our church, come against our community, try and break Anchor Church down, try and undermine us. He fights for us. We cannot be overcome when this Jesus stands with us. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus speaking to Simon Peter, he says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He had the revelation. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he's with his church. Let's look at what Jesus says to the churches. I'm going to read parts of this quickly, and I'm going to highlight a few things. But essentially, we're talking about the fight of faith, and there are three things in the church that are so prominent that we have to fight. I'm going to start in Revelation 2, verse 1. So if you have um, your, your Bible with you this morning, then you can open up at Revelation 2. Um, we're not going to take all the churches in order because I'm going to categorize it in these three categories. Um, so Revelations 2, 1 is where we're going to start. If you have an iPhone or, a, you know, God forbid, a Samsung or an Android phone, you can take it out, get a Bible app, follow along with us, make some notes. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars, that divinity, that ultimate authority, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Jesus, like, I know what you've done but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus is, seems quite passionate about doctrine, it seems. You know, he's like quite, I hate this, these works of the Nicolaitans. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is a common expression that we see um, here in, 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 at the end of each uh, letter to each church. He who has an ear, let him hear. We can hear, but sometimes not listen. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers by remaining faithful, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's saying there is a future, there is eternal life for us who conquer. So the first fight that we come up against in the church is the fight against compromise. The fight against compromise. The fight where we just become like the world, where we become assimilated and accustomed to the ways of the world, and we as the church are shaped by our culture rather than shaping our culture. 
Now, I'm not one of those preachers who comes outright against all forms of culture and you're only allowed to listen to a certain type of music that's approved by Jesus, apparently, and stamped on, like, this is Jesus approved. And, 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 you know, I'm not one of those guys, but there is a line at which our culture begins to remove the potency of the church by dulling down and silencing its message. It's a temptation for every church in every age it was at this time and it will be to us. But in Romans 12, we know the scripture in 12 verse 2, which says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't, be, don't conform to the pattern of this world. And Ephesus here is this first church that's written to in Revelations 2, the, the church in Ephesus. This is a major city in the Roman province of Asia. It's a busy port and a hub of commerce. It has, honestly, monumental buildings that stand in this city. And a lot of the sidewalks actually were inlaid with marble and with massive pillars. And um, this really grand city, it held athletic festivals in its stadium. And events in its theater could hold up to 24,000 people. I don't know why sometimes we think that like people didn't live in the, the ancient world. You know, we think that they just sat like by their haystack on their farm. You know, but but there were major cities. There were hubs of commerce. There was trade. There was there were artisans. There there was athletic festivals or or, or, or sports uh, you know gatherings. There were, all these things existed in the ancient world as they do today. And in Ephesus, they had this massive temple of Artemis a fertility goddess, which was considered one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world. So there's this challenge facing the church in Ephesus, that they're in a, in a city so full and so vibrant with an earthly culture and with idolatry and pagan worship that the church becomes infiltrated, becomes affected. The pastors don't preach the things they should preach and don't say the things they should say because it's not socially acceptable anymore. Does that sound familiar? Like there's certain things that I can say here today that's in the Bible that could land me in the newspapers. And so they just dumb down. I'm not going to talk about it. I don't want to get into trouble. It's the, the temptation, the fight against compromise. And they're facing false doctrine. There are people who claim to be apostles. The apostles were sent ones and they planted churches and oversaw churches and they traveled around and then stayed in the homes as they were hosted by these churches and, and were often looked after. And so there are those who for their own monetary gain and for their own selfish motives declare themselves apostles, go around doing damage to the church. And Jesus says, I like the fact that you don't just accept what anybody says, but you tested and you found whether it was true or false. It's our responsibility to look after what we believe, to seek the scriptures, to know what is true and what is not true, and to stand against falsehood in the church. And so Jesus says, this is something that you've done well. He says, you've also resisted the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was, which was basically um, seems to be a form of idolatry and pagan worship and sexual immorality that came through in a doctrine that was being taught to many of these churches. It was like a wave of doctrine that came through the church at that time that taught people it was okay to take part in certain idolatrous activities and sexual immorality. And so Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm against those things. Jesus is against anything that hurts his people. 
that destroys lives. He's passionately against it. And so he says, you've done well. The fight of truth. So many of philosophies and opinions that you fought well. But here's the problem that can so easily happen in the church. How many people are so doctrinally correct? They know every, I mean, you have an argument with them about the Bible and they're just quoting scriptures and you don't even know if it's the right scriptures, but it sounds impressive. And, 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 and you're just like, okay, man, you know. And, and, but at the same time, at the same time, they don't love people. It's almost, there's almost a direct correlation to how much theological training somebody has and how loveless they are and hard and cruel and cold-hearted they can be. And Jesus goes, look at from where you have fallen. When you were just saved, you loved people. You loved God. You loved being in his presence. You loved worshiping. You loved the church. And now you're standing there going, no, 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 no. That word in that song was theologically incorrect, and I'm going to put this church straight. Yes, we must have good theology, but it's all worthless. Jesus says uh, through Paul in, in the book of Corinthians that if you, if you, if you have, have the, all knowledge and wisdom and you can speak with the t- tongues of men and angels and, and, and the ability to do it, but you don't have love, you're just making a noise. So the base premise of Scripture and, and of who Jesus is is that he is a God of love. And the moment we lose that, we fall from a great height. So yes, be doctrinally correct, but love. Jesus is serious about us knowing who God is. I don't want a church, he says, that doesn't love people. I'll close that church down. I'll close it down. You don't love people, I'll close you down. I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. It's supposed to produce light, and you're not producing light if you don't have love. I'll close it down. He is the lead shepherd of this church. And he'll close it, he can close the church down in a second. He says, but I want you to conquer. I want you to remain faithful. The second church that he has this same issue with, that's facing the same challenge, is the church of Pergamum. We'll come back to Smyrna in a moment. But in Revelation 2 verse 13, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed amongst you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of, of the Nicolaitans, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So here we have the Pergamos, capital city of the ancient Greek kingdom of, of per, uh, Pergamum in the ancient Greek kingdom of Pergamos, and, um, and they're facing persecution. Antipas uh, was, was put to death at that time, and, and, you know, oftentimes persecution reveals who the real Christians are. Imagine, I heard this story once, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I heard that some guys were having church on a Sunday morning, and people came in with guns and closed the doors, with, with assault rifles and closed the doors, and said, okay, if you are willing to die for your faith, stay. If you're not really a Christian, leave. Then you can go free. 
Like, what would you do today if that happened in this place? People ran in here with AK-47 saying, if you're a real Christian, you're willing to die today, then stay in your seat. How many of us would be like, well, you know, I was just visiting. I was actually not so sure. You see, persecution reveals the truth of what we believe. And Jesus says, you stayed faithful. But again, some of you have taken on these beliefs. He talks about Balaam, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, who, who was paid by the Moab king, Balak, to proclaim a curse over the people of Israel. And he wouldn't do it. He said, I can't curse what God has blessed. But what he did teach Balak to do was to get the Moabite people to begin to mix with the Israelites, to begin to intermarry, to begin to influence, slowly corroding their faith. It's talking about compromise, taking on the world and losing your own identity. And he says, I have this against you. You have this guy who's come in and taught people to be like the world and you accept it. This is what I come against you. I want you to repent, which is really, it comes from the Hebrew word teshuva, which means let's return. Go back to God. Turn back to me. Find your identity in me again rather than assimilating into culture. This is what God wants us to do. He says so that they might have food, sacrifice, he says. So also, um, yes, sorry. He says, I will give them hidden manna to eat. I've got something better for you to eat. Rather than the stuff sacrificed to idols, I've got hidden manna for you to eat that will sustain you. Come back to me. I will give you true food and a white stone, which is how they used to judge those days. If you were before on trial before the judges, they would cast a vote with a white stone for innocent. And on that stone, a new name, which in the Bible represents a new destiny. Jesus says, if you conquer, I am giving you, I'm declaring you righteous, innocent, and a new destiny is yours for those who conquer. Then Thyatira, same thing, Revelations 2.18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that the latter works exceed the first. They've just gotten better and better. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, the fight against compromise, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works, but to the rest of you in Tyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. That's a bit of a play of words because I'm sure this woman who, who was nicknamed Jezebel to represent the Old Testament Jezebel taught people the deep things of God. And this was actually common practice in those days that, um, that there were temple prostitutes and people that taught that, that sexual immorality and sexual practices went with the worship of God. And so she's obviously teaching this to the church destroying the church of God. And God goes, I gave her time. Even then, God gives her time to repent. He says, but if not, I will, I will cause tribulation in the life. I will cut off her legacy so that people know that I am the one. You can't just come and teach the church false, falsehoods. I will bring them to this place of repentance. He says, the deep things of Satan, not the deep things of God. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden 
Only hold fast to what, I, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, who is Jesus himself. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this church is on the other end of the spectrum. They seem to have great love and great works, and, and their works at the end is greater than the works at the beginning. The problem is, in the name of love, they've become tolerant of everything. Have you, have you heard the saying, love is love, hashtag love is love? What's your definition of love? How do, how, how do you define that word? Because God is love. People say, well, a God of love wouldn't do this. A God of love. I always want to ask them, how do you know he's a God of love? Who said he's a God? Maybe he's a God of violence and hatred. How do you know he's a God of love? Well, the Bible says, oh, we're referring to the Bible now. Well, if we're referring to the Bible, then let's see what the God of love declares out of love over our life. Let's see what that God of love says is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. And let's hold fast to who the one who is love and defines love in its most complete sense. Let's hold fast to what he says rather than to our social norm of love is love. I love my kids a lot. And for that reason, there are certain things I just don't tolerate. Parents, can I have an amen? Why do you not tolerate those things? Okay, sometimes because it's irritating. But other times, other times, because you love your children because you have their best interests in heart. So love isn't tolerant, specifically for that reason, because it's love. But if you conquer, if you remain faithful, Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will make you ruler over much. And that refers not only to this life, but in the reign of Christ, believers will rule over the earth. In another place it says, I will make you ruler over 10 cities during the reign of Christ, which we'll get to later on. That's the, the first fight that we have as the church. The fight against compromise. The fight against compromise. I have two more that are shorter. Um, the first is the fight against conflict. The second one is the fight against conflict. And, uh, and the third one that I have, so the fight against conflict and, and persecu persecution, and then the third one is the fight against complacency and how God speaks to these churches. Now he's spoken to those who compromise and have been assimilated into the world. But then he moves on to say there are those that are facing conflict, facing persecution, facing hardship. And there are those that have become complacent, those that have just, that have just uh, uh, you know, a greater threat than being persecuted or, 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 or any of these things is actually not being persecuted actually being comfortable. It's the threat of comfort, which is really very much where our society is at. We're at risk of complacency because we're so comfortable. Everything is about our comfort. And I want to dig into that, but I don't want to dishonor this, this passage and the power of it by trying to rush through it in the time that we have left this morning. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there with this message that as the church, we are called to be different. As the church, we are declared as peculiar people. The moment we begin to look like, sound like, 
uh, and be like everything that the world is, we've lost our potency and we've forgotten whom we serve. We've pledged allegiance and loyalty to a worldly system and with that comes the threat that we would lose our influence, that Jesus will take away the lampstand. How many of you know that as a church, we want to be the kind of church and the kind of community that can shape a city and influence a nation? How many of you know that for as long as we are just playing to the people or playing to our culture or playing to what it is that's socially acceptable, we will not have the influence that we desire? Jesus says, when you are faithful over little, I'll make you ruler over much. When we can remain faithful to the message, Jesus gives us true riches. True riches. What is true riches? Influence. The ability to see lives changed. The ability to have an impact on eternity. The ability to stand before Jesus and receive a heavenly reward. How many of you want that reward? I'm encouraging us as a church to fix our eyes on Jesus who stands with us and to declare that we will be faithful to him even when it isn't socially acceptable, even when the attacks come, even when the negative words, even when it's difficult that we will conquer by remaining faithful. And in that way, God will use us and work through us to shape a city and influence a nation and perhaps even nations of the world. Amen? Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning.